Hello everybody, I'm Zach Kenny. I own ZK Painting. This is ZK Live. Hello, sir. How you doing? I didn't realize it was so zoomed in when it was only halfway. Okay. Yeah, it, it changes. I'm learning that too. There we go. How you doing? I'm doing well. Full. Had lots of delicious food. Yeah, we had Full of love from all the family. You know. How's your, how's your mom doing? She's doing wonderful. Great. Doing wonderful. Yeah, we had a nice barbecue. Did you? Yeah. We got takeout from, from Binge Barbecue, another local shop. Nice. Yeah. Gotta support those local businesses. Yep. Um, awesome. So most people on here don't know you. Um, I've known you for a while. We're good friends. You're really close friends with my brother. My brother works for you and your company. Um, but why don't you tell us about custom design, about your experience in the company, and, and we'll sort of start from there, give some people some perspective. Sure. So we are a custom manufacturer of point of purchase displays and store fixtures, among other things. That's our bread and butter. Um, but for those who are not acquainted with the industry at all, I mean, anything that holds any type of merchandise, whether it's uh, footwear and apparel or jewelry, food and beverage, medical equipment, uh, pharmacies, uh, you know, our, our, our span of customer base of what we make in the retail segment goes anywhere from, you know, the Walmarts and Rite Aids of the world to the convenience store, uh, to very, very high-end clients such as, you know, Neiman Marcus that, you know, unfortunately just happened with them, but uh, Bloomingdale's and, you know, high-end department stores to big box stores, independent mom and pop shops. Um, but pretty much we make anything that holds to make it a bit simple, any type of merchandise, any type of anything you buy when you go to a retail shop. So we were uh, founded by my father in 1976. Uh, so next year, or this coming July, which is when we start our fiscal year, we'll mark our 45th year in business. Um, and since then, you know, it was primarily back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, the, uh, uh, the display industry in Rhode Island was kind of a, a result of the jewelry, the costume jewelry boom. Uh, when my father started the company, there were, I think it's something as crazy as uh, 80 plus uh, display companies in the state, which is, you know, uh, kind of crazy considering how small the state is. And, you know, a lot of those businesses, um, they either combined forces or they, you know, unfortunately went out of business when a lot of the uh, jewelry manufacturing went overseas to China uh, or, or overseas anywhere. And uh, of the ones that started, there's only a few of us left. I mean, there's only probably six or seven left in the state now. Um, but we're, I believe, with our last acquisition, the oldest or second oldest display company still left. So my father started out, um, actually, I have it behind me, um, the skateboard up on my wall here. Uh, when he was, uh, I think he was 24 years old or so, um, a local guy came to him and wanted him to manufacture uh, skateboards, the top deck. They were oak skateboards. And he was kind of a guy who was known in the, in the state and local community as a, a woodworker. And uh, he didn't have any money at the time. He was working with his father on construction, doing odd jobs and things. And he borrowed some money. I believe it was, you know, three or four or five hundred dollars to buy the lumber. Worked in his garage with uh, his now brother-in-law, my, my, my uncle, um, in, in Knightsville and Cranston. And that's how the company was started, just that one job. And he decided, you know, that, you know, I have a couple friends or acquaintances in the, the jewelry industry. Maybe I can, you know, make a go of it at making displays. Kind of an odd jump. But uh, it ended up working out a little bit and just kind of snowballed from there. And over the years, the business model has just been to 
you know, uh, further acquire uh, different capabilities to broaden our customer base and our capabilities in terms of uh, services and offerings. And that's kind of why we are still one of the ones still in business today. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a, a brief, but, you know, specific overview of, of what we do. Um, I, you know, uh, any, I tell customers and friends and family and anybody this all the time, you know, because it's such an afterthought of an industry. You know, a lot of people, when they go to a, a retail shop, they're there to buy the item. They, it's kind of a, a second thought to even realize that it's on something that somebody manufactured, but that's what we do. So I always say, if you really want to understand what we do, you, you know, I, I could talk for hours, but you have to walk through the shop and see it because we make everything from a, a $10, you know, or $5 little cup that holds Slim Jims at a convenience store to a, a one-off Christian Dior or, or Gucci display that goes into the Saks Fifth Avenue flagship store and literally everything in between in terms of price point and materials and quantity and, and all that. So that's the, uh, that's so the in point. order to, to what, so you guys work with wood, you work with metal, yep. you work with plastics, you know, you're building these displays out of all types of things and you're, you're coding some percentage of the displays yourself. Um, I'm I, like, I'm a painter. I'm interested. I'm very interested in the powder coating part. Yep. I'm, it's, it's all interesting. Um, but the powder coating is not something that the average painter is going to do. Um, can you just tell me a little bit about powder coating and how you use it in your business? Um, just, just to give people a perspective of what that's all about. Yeah, sure. So generally powder coating is just a way to finish metal. Um, it's very durable. Um, you know, you see people do it on their wheels and their cars and things like that. But for us, uh, we, we did not get into the metal industry until 2003, where we acquired a company called Ocean State Wire, and we brought them into the third segment of our building. And one of the things uh, that we realized very quickly was that powder coating companies that do only that were not set up necessarily to do what we needed. A lot of fixtures we make are larger, so we need, you know, uh, um, we have a batch oven system, so we can do very large pieces. Uh, so a lot of the outdoor pieces, you know, we can powder coat aluminum or steel, um, you can even powder coat MDF and some woods through a certain type of process. Uh, but the process itself, which I'll show you guys in a bit uh, when, I, when I do walk down to the department, um, it's actually a, a, the department that your brother and I ran when we were in college as a night shift. Um, and and uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's very durable. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an electric process, a full circuit where you, um, it's, it's not like painting. It's actually an electromagnetic process and then you bake on the finish. And there's a lot of different uh, types of products out there depending on what you need. Uh, so for instance, a lot of outdoor gas pump signs and things we do for the convenience store sector, we use high density polyethylene that'll last, you know, it, it doesn't chip, it doesn't, you know, you could take a chisel to it almost and it'll stay on there. Uh, but the process is very different than just a wet painting uh, in that is a, there's a, a, a washing process, there's an actual finishing process, and then there's the baking and curing process. So it's, it's different in that, in that, you know, step regard. So, so, I mean, but also in some ways similar in that, you, like when you're going to paint a surface, you're going to prepare the surface, you're going to let something bond to it. But generally we just passively let paint dry and cure. Mm -hmm. You guys use heat, heat. I'm swaying my chair. I got to stop. You guys use heat to make that chem that reaction happen. How, do, yeah. how exactly does it work? So the booth itself, uh, you have a gun. The gun is positively charged and the booth is negatively charged. 
So when you're painting, obviously you're, you know, I see you're, you're always talking about uh, cohesiveness and, and spraying, you know, uh, when you're powder coating, I mean, you can stand back and, and spray. It's not how you would do it, but it actually, by through an electric circuit, uh, uh, is, is, you know, absorbs the, the powder. So that's how it sticks on, to put it in layman's terms. But what the curing process is, is it goes into an oven and it bakes on. So that's uh, in the curing process what makes it so, so strong. And yeah, so, so you, you like, you negatively charge the substrate you're trying to paint. Correct. You positively charge the paint powder. The gun, the gun and therefore the, the powder. The gun and therefore the powder. You yeah. mist powder out into the air around the metal. The electric charge draws the paint to the metal and they, they cover. Correct. Now from that point, you take that and you, then you bake it? Then you bake it, yep. And it depends on what, so a lot of stuff we do is sheet metal, uh, tubular steel, uh, sheet stock. So depending on the thickness of the, the gauge of the metal that you're working with, that depends on uh, the KV uh, of the gun as well as the bake temperature and the bake uh, timing. Um, so for instance, if you're doing just regular wire, and I'll, I'll show this exact uh, example when I go out there, but you know, regular wire, you'll probably bake it for about 15 to 18 minutes at about 400 degrees in the oven. That's no joke. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's no joke. Yeah. And, and I mean, when you see what I'm talking about, when I bring it out there, I mean, it, very quickly when we bought the metal company, it was, um, you know, you can picture you're dealing with a client that is making jewelry cases, for instance. And, you know, these are what I differentiate between point of purchase displays, you know, semi-permanent to permanent to store fixtures, which is, you know, five to 10 year. They expect these things to last and, and be perfect. You know, if there's one little nick or scratch, especially when it arrives, that's unacceptable. So, you know, when, when what we were finding out is the profit center of these larger uh, powder coating only companies is automated lines, smaller parts, and, you know, not the store fixture level of things. You know, in a lot of uh, wholesale accounts that we deal with, they wanted a good price point to use regular steel that's powder coated rather than, you know, say a, an aluminum or a stainless steel that's more expensive, um, but still have a really high end look and finish of the fixture. So what we, you know, that's kind of the happy medium where we arrived at, but their their level of, of what they expect is still at the level of, you know, these higher higher end materials. So we needed complete control over everything. You know, we needed, we didn't want to get in an argument with the powder coating uh, company about a little nick in it and then have to pay to send it back to them and back to us and you know all the the, the timing issues that go along with that in terms of in, in addition to the monetary issues so we decided to invest in buy out a powder coating company that had uh, gone out of business and bring their machinery on site which is kind of the business model with everything we do which is to try to have where it makes sense investment opportunities to have complete control over the whole not only manufacturing process, but everything that we do. So we just continually bring different things on site. Um, we're running out of things to, to bring on site, to be honest with you, which is great. So, so we've talked about this in the past um, on this show, and and the idea of, of having a competitive advantage, um, niching down and having a niche market, in my experience, helps with competitive advantage for me and, and what we do, um, and and I believe it's the same for you. Um, you guys have brought on multiple other, what we could be subcontracted out businesses and you brought them in house. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about competitive advantage, why it's important, um, how hard it is to compete in manufacturing, um, like ma to manufacture things in America today, 
especially at a custom smaller scale. Um, just if you could talk a little bit about how you're able to compete um, and the things that you do and you know, you're still here, you're building things in America, you don't hear that very often. Yeah, I mean, we compete, you know, in the state, we compete in the region, we compete in the country, and we compete globally. So it's, it's uh, in very many layers, really difficult. So what we look at is what can we do that others can't. So the, in my, you know, in, in our business model, the more that we can do under this roof, uh, the more of a competitive advantage we'll have on, uh, uh, you know, one of the most important things is timing. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, you go overseas, um, you're going to inevitably, no matter what, uh, and I tell customers this all the time, sure, if you want to save money and go to China or anywhere else, you will save money. Um, but, you know, you're going to see it in 12 to 16 weeks or whenever you're going to see it. And, you know, you're going to pay up front and, you know, uh, it might be blue when you want it to be green. But that's beside the point. But, you know, uh, so acquiring businesses and machinery and capabilities, and I'm just talking about the manufacturing side because there's other things on the front end that we do as further offerings. But um, to have control over the timing is huge. Uh, to acquire businesses or machinery and bring them in-house, obviously, we don't have, there's no double markup because we're not subbing out, uh, you know, a, a powder coating and then, you know, we're getting charged their markup and then marking it up to our customers. So for that reason, we have a, an edge on our, our, our customers in, uh, you know, around around the uh, the U.S. Um, but just, just in general, you, the, the timing is huge. I mean, I don't recall the last time somebody came to me and said, here's the project, quote it, we like the price, and by the way, you've got a bunch of time. I mean, every, every single person that is talking to us, it's uh, we need it yesterday, and the timing is really never good enough. So to have that all on site is, is crucial, because even if we had a vendor, I'll keep using powder coating for an example, that was bottom dollar price, can't beat it, didn't make sense for us to invest in the machinery, because even with our markup and their markup, we were still cheaper. And I promise somebody a, a, a two week lead time and it comes in and there's a problem. I don't have the ability to fix that problem. I only can call somebody to send it back and do whatever they need to do. And then I might lose a customer over that. And that's how I look at everything is how can I have control over timing and quality and as, as an ancillary, obviously the pricing to make sure that I don't disappoint everybody because customers are too hard to come by nowadays, uh, in the, especially in the U.S. to, you know, if we screw up, we own it. But I would, you know, feel like I'm shooting myself in the foot if I didn't do everything and we as a team didn't do everything to try to to mitigate anything that could go wrong and lose a client. So that what you just touched on something that I, I do want to talk about. We've talked about this other people. I think it's very important in my business, but it's it's relationships, mm -hmm. um, relationships with clients, relationships with with people, you know, in your network. Um, how valuable are the relationships? I mean, you guys have been in business for a long time. You must have a lot of longstanding relationships. How do you build those? Uh, how important they are? You just talk about that a little bit. I think as I know on my end as a business owner, I'm more and more, I understand how valuable building and maintaining relationships are. Um, so I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah, that's everything to us. I mean, to give you an example, uh, we have customers, we have customers that are new all the time. We're always looking for new business, but our, our top 10 customers or so, we have a customer that we've been dealing with for 44 years. Um, it, and that's incredible in and of itself. Uh, but our, our top three or four customers range between 15 and 26 years, I think it is now. 
And, you know, back a decade, two decades ago, that was a lot easier to do if you just worked hard and maintained quality and competitive pricing. Um, I find it very difficult nowadays to do, especially with larger companies, because there's, I just see a trend of such increased turnover with people who are in management and decision-making roles. Um, but yeah, I mean, for us, it's, um, people come to us in very various stages of their process. You know, they may have a napkin drawing or they may have a full scale, uh, uh, spec package of something that they use every, every week they place blanket orders and we have the ability to insert themselves in our process wherever it makes sense for them. Um, but you know, it, it, I find it that even when you, we, you, you do the whole sales spiel and all that, it can take years or months or different people to pay attention to really understand all that you can do. So having that relationship increases, obviously the timing and the opportunity to be able to explain that to them. Um, but yeah, relationships are, are, we're not, and we never market ourselves as come to us, you'll get the dirt cheapest price of all time. We sell ourselves as you can come to us and not have to have five other people on staff because of all the things that we can offer in addition to the pricing and the, and the, the, the timing and the quality that we can offer you, uh, among other things. So, I mean, and I think that it's great. And I'm very proud that there's a reason that that has been, you know, we have clients for as long as we have, it just shows that we are doing our job and we are conveying that point and, and executing correctly. So it's, yeah, with that, without, Without those long-standing relationships and the increased offerings we've been able to give them, we'd be, we'd be out of business with the likes of a lot of others uh, a long time ago. Yeah, I think that's a very common trend in successful businesses is building, like building and maintaining relationships. Um, that's how you make, you know, I know in my business, my best jobs all come from relationships I'm building over time. You know, when you go out to the world, if you just need a new customer every single day, all the time, and you're burning through customers, that's, I mean, that's a model. I get that some businesses run like that, but I think for small businesses that pride ourselves on quality and are going to, are going to have a little bit higher price point, you, we have to build those relationships and maintain them. Yeah. Um, and I see a lot of parallels there. So what's it like having a family business that you're taking over? Um, you know, I, I can't imagine, I, I can't Im slightly imagine, but I love to hear the experience, the ups and downs, like what you've learned, any advice you have for people. I know a number of our guests coming up will also have, will be businesses that they've taken over from their, um, parents or second generation businesses. What's that like? Yeah, it's, uh, so, so another little bit of background, I mean, I've been working sparingly here and learning since I was eight or nine years old. And that's had its uh, distinct advantages. I mean, my, we, we don't have any turnover here virtually. I mean, we've got people here that I grew up with um, that I've learned from, um, from managers to people, you know, just top to bottom. Um, and because they've been here so long, I think that it's even more important for me because, and, and to give advice to anybody else is that get involved as early as you possibly can not only to learn for yourself to be able to to be as great as you can at what you do, but also you got to earn the respect of people that inevitably are going to work for you. I mean, I, I I never, you know, I was too young to realize what my father was doing when I was eight or nine or 10 years old, making me sweep the floors and, and you know, the likes. 
but what he was doing was uh, teaching me humility and showing everybody else that works here that, uh, you know, I, I was not going to be, you know, some, some kid out of college that all of a sudden, oh, here comes Adam one day and he's in charge now. Uh, and I'm glad because I, I you know, with a, such a strong bond between so many people here and myself, you know, we have, we have people here that have been working here since they were 19. And you no, know, they've been working here for literally for 40 years, 30 years, 25 years. And a lot of these guys and, and, and women have taught me a lot of what I know on across the board from the engineering, the prototyping, manufacturing, the finance side, the design side. And I think it's a great thing that we have here that I don't think anybody here really looks at me as their boss in that sense of the word. It's more of, yeah, do, do I have to make decisions inevitably that I'm the only one that's supposed to make them? Sure. But there's a camaraderie here as a family that we're all in this together. And I think it's just the way that I entered the business and I've, you know, never went anywhere else, but it, it's second generation's tough because you're also competing with the ideology of a lot of people who are, you know, my father, for example, uh, started this from nothing. Everybody here has respect beyond belief for him. And they were, you know, looked at him as, you know, our leader and for his son to come in and him to, you know, relinquish responsibilities here and there. I mean, it's, it's a weird world for an employee to live in after 20 years, 30 years to all of a sudden, okay, I, I, my whole world is switched. But I think my best advice for anybody in that is just is to get involved as early as possible and to dedicate everything you have to learning everything about what everybody does from the bottom up, because it only helps the company yourself. And just, you know, how everybody perceives where the company's going and, and how to team up. What's what's been the most difficult part? about being second generation? Yeah. Um, the most difficult part, I mean, the, the business, yeah, the most difficult part would probably be finding the right balance between all the things I just mentioned. I mean, my father still works here. He works here seven days a week. Um, so, and we work together very closely and that's an awesome thing. But it, I mean, it can have its difficulties just because we can overlap what we're doing uh, which is inefficient. Uh, that, that's been a really long, long transition process, which has been great for the, for the most part, but that's probably the most difficult thing to pinpoint because you're always trying to be as efficient as possible. Uh, you know, cause every second counts, every dollar matters. And yeah, that's keeping the communication lines open in the correct way to make sure that you're optimizing all the operations of the company. That's the most difficult by far. Yeah, because you you don't you didn't have a clean break where he was like, "I'm leaving, you're taking over." Yeah, let's go. Yeah, it's it's like subtle shifts in responsibilities. I've I've watched it and I have a lot of respect for just the way you've handled it because that can't be easy no, for either of you. No. You know, guy builds a company, it's his life, and now he's he wants to slow down and give some responsibility away, but. You know, when decisions are being made, it's a stressful time. So yeah, I, I, I often that's tough. Yeah, I often try to empathize with him because I didn't start this company, but this company's my life and has been, like I said, since I was a kid. And you know, as much as it's kind of ingrained in me now that if I was ever told, "Hey, by the way, good news, you can uh, go enjoy the weather for the summer," I wouldn't be able to enjoy myself. I'm too. I, this is too much a part of my life. And I think that what happened was when I was taking over, 
you know, I was so proud. You know, I, I, I literally in third grade when I was asked to do a art project of where I saw myself when I was 30, I drew myself behind the desk that I'm sitting at. And I found it a huge, great deal of pride to be able to responsibly dedicate myself to this uh, organization and allow my father to say, hey, you know, go do what you want to do. And maybe that's not the right way to do it. You know, and, and we kind of arrived at an area where we kind of work in tandem now. And that is what I mean by difficult, because it's like, how do you work in tandem to that level, you know, where, where you're both doing a lot of the same thing. So it's, it's difficult, but it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way in a million years. So that's awesome. Um, how have you seen the, the business evolve um, from when you, even when you were young and watching and like the types of clients, the, the new employees, like what's, what's different now than it, it's, it was in the past? Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, it was a lot more, you know, when I was very young, it was a lot more of um, simpler types of displays. You know, uh, I'm, I won't get into too details, but, you know, things, mass quantities of really simple, low labor um, jobs. And I, you've seen a lot of the medium to high quantity, easy type work be the more competitive side because more people are apt to do them. So I've seen a big shift into more of, like I said, the store fixture side of things, the lower quantity uh, trade skill type stuff. Um, I mean, we've made all glass Tiffany showcases. We've made one-offs for, like I mentioned before, Christian Dior that go into Saks Fifth Avenue. Like, you know, the, these are multi-billion dollar brands trusting us to manufacture something that's going to be at the focal point for their brand and one of the most, you know, uh, uh, you know highest trafficked retail shops in the, in the, in the world. Um, so I've seen a lot of the focus on, you know, ultra high quality, more of the the trade marketing trade show side of things um not to say that we don't do the you know the word we're doing this display right now for a big lot stores a full rollout of all 1300 of their stores um that's uh kind of our bread and butter as well but i've seen a big shift of that and and a huge shift into multi-material um and that's just because of uh i, I think we've been marketing ourselves that way for so long and it's just a, a shift in, you know, nobody wants to have the same old type looking display. You know, the point of my industry, the custom fixture industry is to differentiate yourself between what you buy out of a catalog into something that elevates your brand into, you know, makes it stand out from the competitor. So that's one of the reasons that you, you know, like I mentioned before, that we acquired uh, and got into the metal industry and we've acquired several other companies since then to, to expand what we can do i i think that makes a lot of sense um we we as a custom painting contractor that's what we offer as well and and i can I'm, i look to you and i i think we're going to continue to add pieces to the puzzle where we can you know right now we kind of say if, if pretty much any coding if you want it applied at a high level like we can do it even if we haven't necessarily done that exact coding we know how to apply coatings, we'll figure it out. Um, and, and that, when you go custom, it's a very different model, right, than production. And, and I think you guys have the same thing as us. You're not doing massive quantities of stuff. People come to you because they know they can get a unique product. Um, and they, the same thing happens with us. And I think for, it, for the business model, we talk about competitive advantage a lot. And knowing which, where your competitive advantage is, what market you're going to serve, 
I think is valuable for all businesses. When you try to be all things to all people, if you were trying to do a bunch of production at the same time of doing this, the systems are different. The, mm -hmm. the types of people are different. Um, and it's hard to be efficient. Uh, so when I, t I talk to a lot of paid contractors and I, and I try to talk to them about the same thing, it's like, what makes you special? Whatever it is, I don't care. So maybe you are a production guy. Don't try to do this high-end gloss room then. Just be really fast and, and effective. Um, so I, I think it makes sense um, that you guys are doing well because you have a very competitive, a strong competitive advantage in a niche market. Yeah. Um, would you mind showing us this powder coating setup? Let's do it. I've seen it, but I think all the paint nerds that are out there that are watching this, um, it's it's definitely a pretty cool setup. Um, it's a little bit of a walk, so bear with me. That's all right. People get to see the facility. It's a. So, I, okay. I've been there, okay. and every time I'm there, it's it's so impressive to see. Um, just the idea that there's manufacturing being done in America is cool enough, but to have it be done in our backyard. Uh, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, the quick tour. So we, the building seg segments into the thirds. This is the, the wood shop and the sample department. We, da we dabble in, in painting, not like you, but. There's the paint booth here. over there. Yeah, we got the paint booth. Uh, we've got some hot stamping and silk screening. This is the main, uh, the main assembly area where we do all the finish work. This is, a, this is actually a good example of what we're talking about right here. This is uh, the new vacuum forming department uh, that we, uh, from a, a company we just purchased and brought in. This is to make, you know, thermoformed, vacuum formed uh, uh, certain shapes to hold different merchandising products. And then out in the distance there is where you'll see the, uh, the metal side. So this used to be our warehouse down in the back for finished goods because we do do uh, drop shipping and, and warehousing and logistics services for a lot of our clients that have reruns and, and long-standing programs. We actually just put an addition on the other side of this wall of uh, another 20,000 square feet for that, for that purpose. So we've been, uh, we've acquired three metal companies now since 2003 and uh, just been continually building out this third segment of the, uh, the building. So this side is where the powder coating department is. And I'll give you a good example as well of what I meant by needing a batch oven system. You know, these, these parts that are hanging up right here, this is what you'd go to a, a, a strictly powder coating company for, and they'd have automated belts and, you know, be running tens of thousands of these parts. But this is the kind of stuff, this is actually a, a, a damaged display, but this is a, probably a, a six foot tall floor display. This is all powder coated. And behind you is the oven. So we need that batch oven system to be able to powder coat something that large. So that's. Oh, no. We were, we were so, worried about. So starting here. Service issue. Did you have a question? No, the, you... the service cut out for a second, but you're back. All right, good. Yeah, I had a feeling that would happen. So this is the beginning of the process. So this first. I can't, yeah, this, this first bin here is, that's the muriatic acid bath. So what that does is it both cleans the metal of the oil, but it also puts a microscopic increase like surface area uh, on the metal so it can adhere the, uh, the powder more properly. And then after that, there's just a water rinse tank, and then there's a rust inhibiting sealer. So after the metal is washed, this is the booth I was referring to before. So the booth is here. 
And whatever your, so if I were to take, you told me to do this very slow, so I apologize for moving it so fast. So if you were to take this rack, which is the reason that it's hanging on all these metal hooks and then the rack is metal, is that when it is put into the booth, it's then wired to, see if I can get this rack here so that it completes the, the circuit. And then this gun here is oppositely charged at the booth so that it creates that adhesion. So this is the, the similar, just like to your booth, except it's, it's open air and you're spraying powder instead of paint. Um, looks just like this. Now, the nice thing is you can recycle that, that dust on the floor, right? Um, no? you, you, we don't. Um, yeah. Just because a, a, a lot of the stuff that we're doing requires it to be a pure color. If you get any specs at all on it, it's uh, just not going to be I not going to be worth it. But they do have uh, recycling machines for that, for that purpose because there is a lot of waste. I will admit to that. So after everything's coated, this is, this is the oven here. So it's pretty large. I mean, you could drive a smart car into it for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so we do something really large like uh, that Atrex display that I showed you um, in, this, in this system here. And then, like I said, it bakes at you know, around 400 degrees for about 20 minutes. But you see what I mean by why I need something this large. So after you coat it, what does it look like before you bake it? Does it look like smooth? Does it look like it's just dust on a surface? It looks exactly like dust on a surface, yes. Okay. Yeah. And then it melts and sort of coagulates and like lays out to be that super smooth finish that we know of powder coating will look like? Yeah, I'll show you, I'll show you exactly what it looks like beforehand. So I'm going to get this wire grid here. This might not be the easiest thing to see, but yeah, I think I think we're gonna. That's what it looks like before the oven. I see. And then afterwards, it'll look. They're gonna be confused why everything's on the floor in the morning, but it'll look just like, <laughs> just like this. So this is a, this is a good example. Of a lot of stuff we do is just pure wire shelving, but that's what it'll look like after. Now the skill involved in this is so. You, I'm guessing like many coatings, you need to get a uniform amount of coating everywhere. Um, how do you like, is there ways you can mess it up where the, the finish is like not smooth, but it's, it's bumpy or like, I'm sure oh, there's this, a lot this... of skill involved. What, what are the parameters that a craft person doing this needs to, to fit in? There are a, tr a tremendous amount. Of... Sorry about that. There's, there's a lot of ways to mess it up. So, First and foremost, if you don't properly clean the metal with the acid bath, um, any remnants of oil will affect the outcome. And depending on the, the type of color and the type of powder you're using, uh, like the more metallic powders, for instance, they um, are thinner, uh, different colors are thinner, and it will show blemishes or blister in the, uh, the curing process. You will also, um, if you don't, if you don't uh, lay it on thick enough, then over time it will rust through, especially in not knowing what environment it's going to be in. Um, and then if you don't bake it long enough, you can also, uh, it, will chip, it will chip off easier. So, and then you can also change the, the KV on the gun that will affect uh, if it adheres at all. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot Is of- Is that kilovolts? Yeah. KV?
So, so you're trying to apply a, you're just similar to us. You're trying to apply a uniform amount of coating to surfaces that are not necessarily easy to apply a uniform amount of coating to. Yeah. I mean, and that's it, where the skill comes in. It makes it easier than painting just because it kind of, uh, reduces the margin of error because it's an electromagnetic process. Uh, but all of the parameters, if they're not set correctly to, to perfect, you, you could have issues. So it's a very scientific process. Yeah. It's yeah. We, we have, um, our powder coating company, uh, um, consultants come in all the time to, to properly balance the pH and the acid bath as well as the rust inhibiting bath. And, you know, we've, I mean, we do it for a long time now. So, I mean, there's, it really depends on the type of metal you're using, hot rolled steel, cold rolled steel, aluminum. It depends on the thickness very much. If you don't bake it long enough, if you're using a really thick gauge steel and you bake it for you know, the normal you know, 15 to 25 minutes or so, not gonna have the, the same and correct uh, uh, finish on it. Can you over bake it? What happens if you bake it too long? Um, there's a pretty big margin of error to overbake it. Um, I don't recall a time we've ever left something in the oven so long as to when it had any problems. I actually don't know the answer to. Uh, we should experiment a, someday. I was going to say maybe I'll do an experiment. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly what happens. When when we play with new coatings, we always try to break them. You know, try to figure out the parameters. Granted, you have it down to science, but when we have new stuff, but we're always trying to like thin it to the point where it fails, or um, you know, to figure out especially what we do is so custom all the time is trying to figure out where are parameters that we really can't move with, um, move past. I, I uh, have a, if I had to guess, I think it would blister, but I don't know. I'm going to change the cool. angle here because I got to charge my phone a bit. So we're still good. No worries. All right. Well, that we still have some standard questions that we ask everyone. Yeah. Um, we've kind of gone over that. Um, so, well, I guess we've kind of talked about it. Let's start with, advice uh, for business owners and, and people in business in general. Uh, what's the biggest piece that you wish you had known five, 10 years ago? The biggest piece of advice that I wish I had known was really specific to me. And the question you asked before about being a, a second generation business owner and especially being as young as I was with the responsibility that I was given um, is not to take things so personally. You know, when something is literally your family business, you have the pride in it that you do, you watch your father build it. And, you know, especially me, I deal primarily with sales. So I'm dealing with a lot of customers and you can very easily, especially as a young person, really take things to heart that are just business. And it can, it can really affect your, your, your day or your week or your month or something like that. So I would tell myself, however many years ago, you know, you're going to deal with a lot of stuff you don't want to deal with and people being not as you would expect them to be in terms of understanding or respectful or even cordial, but uh, business is business and you just got to roll with the punches. That's tremendous. I would tell myself the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yes, there's but, I mean, power to like being able to hear the word no and not have it be like, you are a bad person because like, that person said no like it's no it's not a reflection on me as a human it's it's business yeah um, I definitely had a lot of that you know when we were talking with Jessica last week about keeping the ego out of business and how mm -hmm. valuable it can be when you can really separate your ego from the business um, and it, that's not an easy thing to do but trial and error will help you get there 
Yeah, it's certainly important to believe in what you're doing and believe you're the best, or at least doing the best that you can possibly do. But you can't, yeah, you're exactly right. As soon as you bring ego into it, then you start to take things to a, a level where it becomes uh, uh, counteractive and you start to resent things or resent people and it's just not a motivator, so. Yeah, someone had a question on here and we're gonna, it's a little small, I'm gonna read it though. Do you, do you find the younger generation is more transactional slash results driven than relationship driven? And how do you balance that and stay current with, wait, there's more. I, it cut off and stay current. We talked a little bit about this. Yeah, I, um, as a generalization, I find it 50-50. I hate to answer it that way. Um, if I had to lean one way a little bit, I would find that the younger generation, my generation, our generation is a bit more results driven than relationship driven. But um, I've had a lot of awesome relationships that I've built with people that are younger or the same age um, or even a little bit older than me. Um, so my personal experience would be that it would be right down the middle. I agree. I, I think the, the more successful the business owner or even human, the better relationships and the more they value the relationships. Um, it, it just takes less work when you build this, when you build a machine, uh, the book good to great talks about the flywheel effect. And when you have a, a, um, a merry-go-round, how hard it is to like get it going. But once it's going, it takes these like little pushes to keep the merry-go-round flying. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the same thing is true with, in business with relationships. When you've built them and you sustain them, they only need little bits of water and they keep growing where to start a new relationship takes all this effort. And if you're constantly starting new ones and not like fostering the ones that you have already, um, it definitely makes life easier. You, I'm sure you can succeed with very quid pro quo transactional business, but it's tough to have a long game um, that way. So I definitely believe in the relationships. Yeah, I think if any, if anything, I've actually had probably more issues on the sales side of dealing with people in the older generation, just because, I mean, being young, I'm not necessarily that young now, but when I was 22, 23 years old, uh, and taking over the company, a lot of people looked at me and said, no matter if I knew what I was talking about or not, basically they, they put their blinders on and I was a kid talking to the, the adult and no matter what I said, it didn't matter. So I think that I was really fortunate to work with some companies that had a lot of people in, you know, my contemporaries in charge. And I, I mean, I had great relationships with all of them or most of them and continue to, so. That's awesome. All right. Um, so your pay, your, we always ask everyone their favorite piece of paint paraphernalia. Um, not as not a specifically a painter, but you have painting as part of your business. Um, I'm interested to hear what the answer to this question is. So I have two. Um, number one is actually the powder coating hole system I just showed you. And the reason for that is because it kind of signified for me like a really important time in my business life because it was, you know, we purchased it when I was probably 15 or 16 years old. And it was, you know, I had been, I learned every machine in here uh, that we had at the, up to that point, um, you know, 10 times over. So that was kind of the first really new thing that I experienced 
while being old enough to really be part of the whole administrative process. And it also was um, the the department that I ran the night shift when I was in, in, in college. So that has like a really great significance. And it's, you know, it's a really fun uh, and important part of the business. And then the second would be actually the vacuum forming equipment that I showed you only because um, for years and years and years, I would always ask my father, you know, your business model is to bring everything in house. You know, we, what, you know, we're always subbing out vacuum forming. And it was because his cousin uh, who's since passed away uh, owned a vacuum forming company and we wanted to give him the business. And my, my father always was in love with these machines and we had the opportunity to buy a couple of them. So it's been a, a fun and exciting kind of process with him and I to, to acquire those and be able to use them. That's awesome. That's powerful, the stories in, in family and business. Yeah. Um, all right. How about we need an embarrassing moment, an embarrassing story, because we all know we have them. We're all human. Um, let's hear your most embarrassing story. Yeah. When you, when you told me you were going to ask this, there was only one story to tell you. Um, I don't remember exactly when it was. I, I think I was, it was when we were running the night shift, so I was in college. And we were making all of the displays in, I think all the displays for the US at that time for Ray-Ban eyewear. And uh, we were doing a floor model. I don't know if you've ever seen them before. You might see it after I'm explaining it to you, but it was uh, this silver painted floor model with these black uh, extruded sides. And we made thousands and thousands of these floor models. And they were really nice, high-end expensive units. and. We were closing down the shop one night, lights were off, and I had just brought a pallet to the other side of, of, of the building, and I needed to return the forklift back to its station. And I was going, I'm telling you, Zach, I was going half a mile an hour. And I didn't realize, because there was no sound or anything, but one of the air hoses was caught in the tire. So it got caught in the tire, but I, you know there was no tension, obviously. It's just an air hose against a forklift. And it just nicked to the front of one of the Ray-Ban floor displays. Now there's probably 150 of them lined up in rows. And it, all it took was the first one, the, the correct tension on the air hose. I knocked over the first one. My father was sitting in an office in the back where we go after work to have a, a coffee. And I'm driving and I hear, it sounded like an explosion almost. It was all the plexi uh, breaking. And, um, you heard boom, 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 boom. And it was just a domino effect. And I destroyed probably $80,000 worth of displays in that one. <laughs> and it was one of those Sorry, moments where it was one of those moments where it was so awful that nobody could even get mad. It was just uh, too overwhelming. It worked out, but it, and they were due the next day to ship too. It was like we need these now. We have the stores ready to go. These need to be in there. It was it was awful. That's insane. How did yeah. you fix it? We called our insurance company, uh, and luckily, you know, it was it was part of our product liability insurance. Uh, how we fixed it is worked all weekend. You know, called all our vendors. You know, recut the plexi, got the new back the vacuum form and extrusions in. Um, but the real way it was fixed is you know, alluding back to what we talked about, about relationships before, which is, um, that's a long-standing relationship we've had with that customer. So we called them, explained it. And I think the response was one of my favorite responses I've ever heard, which was, um, cause we were 
as you can imagine, it's maybe half funny now. It was not funny when this happened. I can imagine. And um, so we're freaking out, you know, thinking about the worst. And the response from the customer was, we love you. Calm down. We're not saving lives. We're building displays. Let me know when you can get the rest of them. And a lot of companies would not say that. They would say much worse things. But that goes back to what we were talking about before. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, totally. That's the relationships. And yeah. if that's the first time you've ever done business with them, it's probably the last. Definitely the last. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's an awesome story. I, I'm sorry for laughing. I'm laughing because I feel like it's been fought long enough that maybe it doesn't hurt so much. But it sounds like maybe it does yeah. still hurt a little bit. It'll probably always hurt a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, nobody's perfect. Stuff's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, it's another great reason to have good insurance uh, as a business. Yes. Well put. Um, I know when I first started in business, I had nothing, so it didn't matter. And, you know, I was always looking for just what's the call the guy, what's the cheapest policy I can possibly get so these people will hire me. Um, and now it's, it's very different when you go to get insurance. You know, insurance is there to, to make sure that you're, everything's going to be okay when things go bad, not so that you can get a job from somebody. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's having, I have a great insurance agent and I've had stuff happen in the past little things and, you know, you're so afraid to use it. And they're always like, you have insurance for a reason. Like you need to file a claim if you need to. So yeah. that, that's, that's very interesting. Um, thank it's you for sharing only, that the only story. time we've had to use that. Really? Liability, yeah. Thankfully. <laughs> wow. Well, Adam, thank you so much for coming on ZK Live. Um, I'm glad everyone got to find out about powder coating. But more importantly, that the business advice, the relationships, it's, it's going to be a trend, I think, in all of the, the episodes that we do. Um, you know, we have a relationship. That's why we started this. It, the relationships and, and cultivating them and and being good and adding value, you know, it's, it's always better than not. Um, so, yeah, man, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Love what you're doing. Keep it up. Thanks, man. All right. I'll see you soon. All right. Bye. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me on this Mother's Day evening. Um, it was pretty awesome to see. I it's hard to get the full to grasp how awesome that facility is uh through half a screen on uh, instagram live um but i've been in that facility i'd heard all about it the first time you go just to see all the machines and and a, a, a company in america that's taking raw goods and and manufacturing something um is so cool um you know it's it's awesome i'm so glad that you guys got to see that um, I'm always into different and odd coatings. Believe me, many of times I've thought about, oh, what if we just added a powder coating division? That's insane. I probably will never do it, but I, I love those like unique coatings that um, have a real competitive advantage in the market. Um, so thanks again. Wednesday, 6 p.m., we'll be back. I have a few people I'm trying to pin down who it's going to be, but I promise it's going to be an awesome episode. Uh, so stay tuned. Thank you.